0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Connor. We are joined today by Dr. Leticia Nanket, and we're going to be talking about her 2021 book, um, Iranian Literature After the Islamic Revolution. Leticia, welcome.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: So... We always here like to start with your story of uh, where you're from and your journey to, ra- to writing the book.
0: Sure. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. My name is Leticia I'm a French-Australian scholar. I'm based at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. And I spent all my childhood and teenage years in France. I grew up in the suburbs of Paris. I was always into books and readings, and I read lots of French books and then classics of world literature. And then I discovered Persian literature one summer after my BA in philosophy and literature. And I started reading a lot about Iran and Afghanistan. Um, I read Persian literature in French translation. I'm really connected with it. So, just yeah, I just started from reading Persian literature and French translation, and I decided to start Persian studies in Paris. I love the language. It's very musical and poetical, and I really, really wanted to go to Persian-speaking countries. So, eventually, after a year uh, of studies in Paris, I decided to go to Iran and to enroll at the university there. So, that was in 2005 and six. So I went to Esfahan first because it's a more manageable city to deal with than Tehran. Tehran is crazy. I love it, but it's it's crazy. So I spent a few months in Esfahan, and then I went to, to Tehran. And there I met lots of students from the UK. Uh, so I decided I would continue Persian in the UK. So I went to uh, SOAS, which is in London, uh, to do my master and PhD on contemporary Persian literature. So... When I was in Iran, uh, although I started being interested in the country by reading classical literature, when I went to Iran, I discovered contemporary literature, and that's become my focus, and I'm really interested in Iranian culture in modern and contemporary times. So, yeah, so I did my PhD at SOAS and then was looking for jobs. I got my first uh, postdoc um At Harvard, it was a Fulbright Fellowship, and then I applied to lots of jobs everywhere in the world. I got one at UNSW in Sydney, and then it became a a permanent position. So I've been at UNSW for 10 years now, so quite a long time, and Australia has become home.
1: Excellent. If we can back up just a moment, um, you wrote a book about literature, Iranian literature, and it's contemporary, but I want to know what it was about whether it was classical or contemporary Iranian literature, in the beginning, why do you think you connected so much with it when you first started reading it when you were younger?
0: Yeah, I. so the first I started to read was Mulana, so Rumi uh, in French translation, and I loved it. And there's also a French novel by Joseph Kessel called The Horse Riders, The Horseman. I'm not sure about the translation into English. Uh, and it's a wonderful epic novel about Afghanistan. So the sort of mixture of these two uh, reading classical Persian and this wonderful epic novel about Afghanistan sort of sparked my interest in the region. And and then it's really the language that drove me to want to learn more about Iran and eventually to to travel there. And, you know, I was young, I was sort of 1920. So it was also a time to, when I wanted to explore and, and do things. And at first I wanted to go to Afghanistan, it was two thousand five. It was a bit tricky, uh, so I decided to to go to Iran instead. And it's been it's been um, I mean, it was a very enriching year, uh, a bit of a crazy year, and I had lots of issues to get a visa and to be able to stay there. But it was it really changed my life. You know, it's a bit of a cliche to say that, but uh, it changed you know my way to see life. And Iran has become a, a part of my life since then. So I'm really grateful I could do this.
1: It's amazing. What was your entrance then to the contemporary literature world for Iran?
0: At the University of Esfahan, I met girls at the university who introduced me to contemporary and modern uh, short stories and novels, and I had, you know, never read anything like this. And I, you know, it was also based on friendships. You know, we connected, they introduced me to things, and I found that interesting. So it was. Um, it was based on, on these relationships I had in Iran and then the fact of being in the country and discovering everything that was happening at the time. And, you know, it's a very vibrant culture. Um, so I just really wanted to know more about what was happening these days and not in the past. So that's, um, you know, I went to lots of art exhibitions and music and concert, and that's really connected me to, uh, to contemporary culture.
1: That's amazing. So your title kind of tells it all, but I want you to maybe tell us a bit about what defines contemporary Iranian um, literature and why is the revolution an important moment in this?
0: Right. That's a big question. Uh, I'm not sure I actually end up defining Iranian literature because it's very complex and it's very divided in a way. So when I started this research, actually, I started with the premise, with the hypothesis that Iranian literature from within Iran and Iranian literature in the diaspora are very well connected. And your listeners might know that there's a very big Iranian diaspora in Western countries and they're very active culturally in cinema and literature and so on. When I started this research, I was you know, thinking about it in Iran, where you have lots of movies and music coming from the US. And there's lots of exchanges in between mostly the US and, and Iran in terms of cultural production. So I was thinking, oh, the same thing must happen with literature. But actually, there's, there's quite a bit of a disconnect between what happens in the literary field in Iran and what happens in the diaspora. So I would say that they are sort of two separate fields. That's maybe a way to define it. You've got the the literature that happens within Iran and the literature uh, that happens in the diaspora, and both are very rich, but they work very, very differently. And of course, in the literary field in Iran, you've got the, uh, the question of sanctions and censorship and a very restrained literary field due to politics and the diaspora has its own sets of issues. So, so yeah, I suppose that's that's one thing I would say to start with, but I also didn't want to, you know, the the two are sort of separate, and when we look at the scholarship, Iranian studies is quite separate from the study of the Iranian diaspora, so I wanted to write a book that would try to connect them and to uh, make the link at the academic level between these two spaces, to, to sort of look at them together at the same time to to connect them.
1: You you have a quote in the book, something along the lines. This isn't exactly right, but something along the lines of um, the writers in Iran see those that are in the diaspora as traitors, and vice versa. Maybe this is too strong of language, but have you seen a sense of animosity towards the two groups, or how would you explain that re- that re- um, that relationship?
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting because I think it's less the case when you look at filmmakers or, you know, people who produce music, you don't have this sense of disconnect. But when you deal with literary production, and maybe it's linked to the language, to the fact that when you leave Iran, you lose your connection to the Persian language in a way. So it means um, there's this disconnect with what happens in Iran, and I did find that a lot of, uh, you know, people I talked to in Iran were finding that, you know, if you are an Iranian writer and you left the country, then you're, you're sort of forgotten, and Iranian readers from within the country are not so much interested to read the production of Iranian writers in the diaspora. And, and I think it might be because the Persian language is, is evolving very, very quickly, maybe more quickly than, you know, if you can think of French or English or other European languages. There's, there's less, uh, the evolution uh, is less quick, but Persian has been evolving very rapidly uh, in the past decade. So if you leave the country for 10 years, uh, you, you, uh, your language will be very different uh, from that of the younger generation.
1: And Persian language pretty much defines the literature in Iran, right? It's very rare to find a minority language that's publishing
0: yeah, so that's that's something that's uh, problematic within the Iranian field, which is that everything is connected to the Persian language. It's very, the the regime and the government uh, are very centralizing in terms of language. Uh, it's very difficult to learn a minority language and Iran is full of minorities, Kurdish, Turkish, Arabs uh, laws who cannot uh, use their language in, in school or in publications. So eventually it means that when we talk about the Iranian literary field in Iran, it's mostly the Persian literary field. You do have exceptions, and you've got some small publishing houses in Turkish in Tabriz, and and they are maybe becoming a bit more important. Uh, but it's it with talking about very small scale. And that's mostly linked to this policy of centralizing uh, everything around Persian, which which is something that the Islamic Republic has done, but it was also a policy of the previous regimes. It's been very much something that started at the beginning of the 20th century.
1: Nation-state, huh? building the Iranian nation-state. Absolutely. Um, can you kind of lay down the framework for us for what the censorship looks like inside Iran. What what sort of hot topics are they looking for to not be published in the country?
0: Right. So censorship is a complex issue because you I think you need in the case of Iran you need to look at it in both what is censored in terms of you know, the, the words you cannot use, the scenes you cannot use, the language, but you also need to look at the propaganda aspect. Censorship also means that uh, the regime is going to support certain types of text and of writers and of uh, ideas. So I think it's important to have these dual uh, elements in mind. I would say that censorship, I mean, at at the very beginning of the revolution, there was a period of a year or a year and a half when lots of things were being published. And it was a time when... publications were booming. Very soon after when the war started, uh, the regime started to control the publication and to take everything in its hands. But it takes a few years until they uh, implement uh, specific laws. And the laws have always been quite vague. So because of that, it's possible to I mean there's a lot of fluidity in the way that censorship is implemented is implemented. So it means that it Up to a point, it depends as to who is Minister of Culture at this time, who is the censor, who gets your book, Um, even if you have connections or if you you can bribe the censor, you know, there will be lots of possibilities of uh, negotiating and also of um, fluidity as to what is going to be censored at a certain time. So a book might be censored and then a few months later it will be back again on the shelves and and the reverse happens. I would say probably at the very beginning of the revolution because the idea of the revolution was very much to create a new Islamic society, to create a new Islamic literature. It was very prescriptive. It was very much you need to write about this and this and that. And it was the war as well and the war effort was very important in terms of cultural production the war was called the secret defense, Defaye Moradas, and the sacred defense was, you know, the way the regime organized uh, the production of its values and its ideals and how it implemented it in terms of uh, cultural production. So because you had this very prescriptive agenda at the beginning, it was quite Defined how the censorship model worked. And throughout the years, it's become a bit looser. And these days, it's more about um, the censor decides that you cannot use this word or that word. And it's mostly linked to morality, like you cannot talk about kissing, you cannot talk about anything intimate, for example. But it doesn't go to the same length as it used to um, after the revolution. So. I think today they are using a lot of softwares like to look for you know the the, the bad words like everything that deals with morality or consumption of alcohol or gambling or these kind of things, but you don't have the, the same um, the censorship implemented to, to the same extent. Uh, and interestingly, you have uh, now the censorship has been sort of, um, it used to be the Ministry of Culture and Islamic Guidance, which was organizing the whole process. And now because they are overwhelmed with um, books uh, sometimes um, they give the censorship to freelance outside companies, so that creates, you know, difficult and problems in their own terms because then you deal with, you know, different people and and uh, a problem of coherence in the implementation of censorship.
1: I guess, as an example, how challenging do you think it would be for your work here to get published in in Iran, and why? the book you've um,
0: My book, actually, it's it's very important for me to have my work circulated in Persian. Um, so I've tried to have this book translated. It's been a bit difficult, but I'm hoping it will happen sometime soon. I would probably have to delete um, the whole chapter three because it deals with censorship and basically you cannot really uh, write about it um, in those terms. And I would probably have to delete some terms and words that are not deemed appropriate, or some ways of phrasing political um, political moments um, that that are not uh, appropriate at at the moment. But I I think I would be okay with it. Um, the you you might know that Iran hasn't signed uh, most of the uh, global copyright agreements, uh, so my work is. Maybe even circulating in Iran at the moment. Uh, so I, I don't know about it, but it might it might already be there and and circulating in in a different shape and and yeah.
1: Well, that kind of leads us into the black market, I suppose. Um, and I, it, you, I think you make it pretty clear in your book that the people in Iran do like to read the books, just like everyone else in the world, that cover topics like kissing and these sorts of things and so there is a market for it I think in in uh, Iran so what is the nature of the black market how do the people get a get their get their hands on? That on these on these on these works that don't make it through the censorship process.
0: Yeah, so you've got uh, what we can call black market, or you can call it underground or unofficial, whatever. There's many terms for it, and and lots of books are circulating through that. With the arrival of um, di- digital literature, it's been a lot easier to have access to uh, forbidden publications. So you, for example. Lolita by uh, Nabokov um, is is a banned book, so you cannot have access to it um, in Iran at the moment. But you you will find it in bookshops around around the main uh, the main place where you've got all the the uh, second second hand bookshops and uh, and bookshops and sellers uh, around the University of Tehran, or you will find it online. So it's pretty easy to access forbidden literature um, if you know how to navigate this space. and sometimes it's not even, you know, it's even in the broad daylight, like um, around the University of Tehran, you've got all secondhand books, booksellers who have their books in the broad daylight and it's possible to buy uh, all these books. And sometimes the police is going to arrive and uh, ask them to wrap it up. But most of the time it's okay and they're just selling it as it is. If if we're talking about the underground and the black markets, I'd like to say something about the fact that. I actually expected to find a lot more of black market in underground publication when I started this uh, research. So you you have a lot of this informal circulation going on, and people selling um, in the metro or in the streets rather cheap copies of forbidden books. But you don't have a lot of first-hand publications that go through the black market. So you don't uh, uh, writers try to tend to get permission to print from the Ministry of Culture and Islamic Guidance and try to get through the official channels. I think there's, you know, largely like everywhere, there's there's a desire for recognition by the institutions. And so publishing in the black market and on the ground for for a first-time publication is not as prestigious as, um, you know, having a proper publication. So you actually don't have a lot of these sort of black market books that would tend to be about hot topics and difficult topics, banned topics.
1: Hmm. Okay. Oh, I had one more question with that. Sorry. I wanted to ask about foreign literature coming into Iran and how I'm assuming it goes through the same censorship process, but I'm more curious how popular is foreign Mm. literature in Iran.
0: Yeah, foreign literature is very important. You've got about 30% of the literature that comes from uh, translations of foreign literature, and it's very big. If you compare it to the US, only 3% of uh, the market of literature is from translated books. So that's a huge difference. Uh, European countries are more in between sort of 15%. So Iran is, is at the very top, especially in terms of prose. Novels and short stories um, of foreign literature are, are the most popular. And you would be surprised to see, you know, books that are just published in the U.S. or even not yet published in the U.S. Uh, have already appeared um, in Iranian bookshops. Um, The fact that Iran hasn't signed the copyright convention, the Berne convention, means that the publishers can get access to the text and publish it without having to pay copyrights So it means that you have a lot of translations, easily accessible. One of the issues with that, unfortunately, is that translation, um, you you have a lot of translations and not all of them are of very high quality. So there's a very big market for translation, but it's also a bit unregulated and not always of top quality. On the question of copyright, I should say that there's been a bit of a shift in the mood of publishers in the past Maybe 10, 15 years, because a lot of uh, publishers, especially independent publishers, realize that the state of affairs where they don't buy the copyrights is actually negative for them. It means that publishers from uh, European countries see them as thieves, you know, they see them as publishers who just get the book and do whatever they want with it. So they've tried to informally join the global book market by trying to buy the copyright even if it's for a very low price and they try to negotiate it and explain to publishers the special circumstances of their own. But for example, a very big publisher, Ophor, has been doing this for many years, I think 12 or maybe 15 years, like buying the copyrights for all uh, the books it publishes in translation, so that that's a trend that you see increasing.
1: So, would works like books by Dostoevsky and J.K. Rowling make it through the censorship, but just lose a lot of the the juicy stuff in the book, lose a lot of the meat of it, or how how, how does that go usually?
0: Yeah, they, they definitely make it. Uh, and you. I think there's maybe 10 different translations of Harry Potter, for example. And it's a big, it's been a huge bestseller from the beginning. It is It is censored. And when you look at, at uh, the, the details of the books which are censored, translated literature is... Maybe a little less censored than literature in Persian, um, but it's still quite, you know, censored, and you can uh, be asked to delete certain chapters and certain sections. But mostly, it's it's out there and accessible to to Iranian readers. But of course, there will always be books that will not be published uh, in the Iranian market. For example, I'm thinking of the memoirs of Farah Palavi. Uh, that will never be able to be published in in Iran. Anything that deals with the previous regime uh, will will not be published.
1: And, I mean, a big part of this is that Iranians, of course, have the internet and are crafty and can find a way to read the books they want. Along with that, with the internet, you talk about the blogosphere and this world of uh, posting on online, Facebook, uh, places of that in nature. Um, What's the landscape with that, with sharing thoughts and ideas in in Iran and the diaspora.
0: Yeah, yeah. So blogs have been really important in Iran at the beginning of the two thousand around two thousand five six. They've and and there was a time that the internet was not really censored because the regime wasn't quite sure what to do with it. So there was maybe a year or so of a really a blossoming of literary texts online. So at that moment, that sort of shifted things in the literary field after a year or so uh, censorship was implemented online and things came back to, to normal sort of but you still see some spaces of freedom and resistance online that you cannot see in print for example you can publish some erotic poems online that you would never see in print it it sort of goes you know through the net um, and if the writer is not very well or if um, he or she doesn't publish on these sorts of poems, then that's okay to to publish them online. It doesn't mean that uh, it's always okay. And lots of online literary people have been arrested and jailed, and and, and censorship is is very strong, but you do see those spaces of um, of freedom online. I would say that the blog literature has, has had an important impact on the evolution of the literary field in in the sense that the short form has become a, a lot more important uh, to the evolution of Persian literature, and that has been uh, a direct influence from from the blogs uh, from the literary blog, since blogs are not there anymore they're not important anymore but since the mid 2010s you've got instagram uh, which has played a very important role it's not uh, mostly it's not banned and so a lot of the uh, evolutions that you see in contemporary European literature today uh, happen on instagram
1: i was kind of hoping to wait to the end of the interview to to talk about this but when you're talking about social media i thought of the protests that were happening you know the last few months and I guess here I'm in the U.S. and I would see musicians and people of that nature post um, protest songs on the Internet and then hear, oh, they're in jail now. And so um, I guess what can you speak a little bit to what the space of the Internet is as a form of revolt for Iranians? I know it's not quite aligned with literature, but it's all kind of related, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah the internet has played an important space in promoting certain types of protest and also promoting certain forms. I'm, I'm thinking poetry is very important in the way that the, these protests have taken shape in the past few months. And you see a lot of slogans that are very much poetical slogans. Online and that's that's where you you see these sort of new forms and and cultural production happening. So yeah, it's been it's been very important. But the regime is very good at uh, you know managing the speed of the internet and cracking it down on you know certain spaces. So it's also it's also a, a mouse and cat game of uh, something is happening in one space and then the regime is cracking down and and that moves to a different space. You used to see that for example uh, newspapers are have maybe less importance today than they used to have 20 years ago but you used to see you know important discourses and ideas in certain newspapers and the newspaper would be closed on and two weeks later, you would see the same people, the same journalists writing a new newspaper with a new name, with basically the same, you know, sentiment, same ideas. So that, that's how things are, are moving. Some some spaces are closed on, and they move to to different spaces. But of course, that means that the whole dynamic of resistance is sort of stopped, and you know, people are stopped in their track, and it's a very tiring game for Iranians.
1: Well, I guess moving to the beautiful side of the culture, um, you mentioned a couple of times being in, I believe it's the International Book Book Fair in Tehran, I think. And I was wondering if you could take us for a walk through the fair, what it it feels like there. Um, What do you see? What books are there? What books are popular there? What books are not popular there? And kind of your, I guess, a little bit of your analysis of all that.
0: Yeah, so the International Book Fair is a big cultural event here on. I must say that it is an event that is organized by the government mostly, so it has this governmental input to it. You do have independent publishers coming and being out there. But in the past 10 years, you've seen many independent publishers having trouble to expose certain books or even being banned from attending the book fair. So it's not a, a neutral uh, space. It is a space that has this governmental touch on it. But it is a moment at which literary practitioners get together and there's this encounter with readers. I must say also it's a very popular space. You'd don't have a lot of times in Iran where young people can meet in, you know, in a public space and, you know, have fun and discuss sort of without being too much seen by the morality police or their families. Or, um, so the book fair is a space where you basically meet up and hang out with boys and girls. So that's that gives this element of. Fun to the book fair. You have you also have a very big children's section, so children's literature is very important in Iran. It's a pretty well organized and professional sector, and the children's literature section in the book fair is, is very big and it's you know full of colors and balloons and kids running around. So it's quite nice. Um, but you also have a uh, very governmental section with uh, the very heavy Islamic publishers or the publishers coming from other Islamic countries like from Palestine or from uh, Syria, you know, the the regime sort of linked to the the Iranian regime. Mostly these sections are not very well attended, but they're there and they're very important to uh, how the regime sees itself and deploys its sort of soft cultural diplomacy.
1: Sure. Well, with that and with the genres that are popular, not popular. I was wondering if you could do a bit of compare and contrast with I guess the genres of literature that get traction in 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 Iran but maybe not in places like France, Australia, and the US and vice versa. So what's kind of the difference between these places of what's read and what 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 works in the West and what doesn't work there and what's the other opposite mm-hmm. of that?
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so the literature published outside of Iran is quite specific. In the US, you've got a lot of memoirs, for example. It's become a bit more diversified in the past um, maybe five, six years. But um, from from the 2000, you used to have lots of memoirs by Iranian-Americans, for example. It's a bit different in France or in the UK, where you have more short stories and novels. Uh, in Iran itself, you don't have a lot of memoirs. That's not a genre that's really important but you do have things that maybe are surprising for a western audience like you have a lot of romances and they are very popular and uh, lots of people mostly women read them but they're very popular and they're everywhere and i'm saying it's maybe unexpected because you know i mentioned the fact that it's impossible to talk about intimate relationships and you might not expect that romances are a big thing uh, but they are in a very Islamic way and very often the ending of the romance is not at all what we would expect as, as a Western audience. It's very much about re-implementing the rules that Islamic society think are appropriate for a relationship between a man and a woman but you've got all these developments within the story and and these romances are changing as well and it's about women and men engaging in, in different ways and maybe meeting each other in at university or at work. So that also brings some changes and some negotiations that you didn't see uh, some time ago. You've got a, a segment of literature that's mostly never translated into Western countries. That's the sacred defense literature I was mentioning before. There's been one text translated called Da. What is it in English? I forget the title um, in English, but I think it's called One Woman's War, and this is this is a memoir by a woman who was at the war front, and she talks about her ordeal. and uh, She's very much aligned with the ideas of the Islamic Republic, and the text has been supported and promoted by the regime. So it's this sort of text that you see a lot in Iran that you usually don't have a glimpse of in Western countries. This one has been translated, but that's the only exception I can think of. And a lot of uh, a lot of people in Iran have to read these text because they're like on the curriculum. You get them as a, as a student in school, in, at university. But, you know, sometimes they're not very um, big bestsellers. They are very much about the same topics and they're quite formulaic um, in the way they function. But they do exist and they form a very important part of what the literary field looks like.
1: Are they sort of a promotion of Iranian nationalism? Is that kind of what the idea of the sacred defense is?
0: Yeah, it's about it's about the narrative around the war against Iraq. So that was between eighty and eighty-eight, and uh, it's very much this narrative that Iraq attacked us and we defended ourselves because we are representing Islam and we are, you know, the good, and there's this whole notions of uh, martyrdom and sacrifice uh, that comes into it. It's very much male-dominated, but in the last sort of 10, 15 years, you've seen more texts written by women who might have been nurses or even, you know, the wives or sisters of uh, people at the front and who tell the, the stories of how the war unfolded for them. Hmm. But the war was very, I mean, the, the we, we talk a lot about the Islamic Revolution as this watershed moment, and of course it was a watershed moment, but what really crystallized the regime and especially in terms of culture was the war. The war was this moment when, you know, all the 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 messy discourses of the revolution could be um, put on the side and it was a moment where they could um, bring together uh, what they wanted to do with this Islamic society. So uh, yeah, it's important to to keep in mind that the, the war is really a moment when, when everything crystallizes and when the regime establishes itself with very uh, unified um, ideology and discourse.
1: Sounds like it's safe to say that the New York Times top sellers don't quite align with what the what the top selling books are in Iran. Or would you disagree with that?
0: <laughs> no, no, I think you're right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but you we, do have,
0: for example, the the memoirs of Michelle Obama. When they came out, they were very big on uh, in Iranian bookshops. So, yeah, sometimes yeah. they overlap.
1: <laughs> good for her. <laughs> um, we touched on it a little bit, but would you say that the diaspora literature do you see more authors and poets and such do they try to would you say they're 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 uh, trying to let go of their Iranian past or embrace it fit in more with the place they're living now how would you kind of explain how the average uh, diaspora author kind of navigates those waters
0: Mm. It's it's difficult to say that doing you know one thing because it's quite diverse and I would say it's probably very country specific. So you see certain trends happening in the U.S. that you don't see happening in France or in Australia for that matter. So for example, in Australia, we have a, a specific genre of writing about uh, being a refugee and making this refugee journey. Uh, you might have heard about. Beruz Buchani was an Iranian Kurdish journalist. He wrote a book called uh, No Friends But the Mountain. It's specifically about that, about this uh, Pacific Island prisons. Uh, so you have this in Australia that you would not see in other places. So yeah, I would say that Iranian literature is dependent on, on the context uh, in which it inscribes itself. And Iranian writers have been very good at integrating themselves into the literary fields into which you know they, they come. Uh, so very often they put Persian on the side and you start to use English or German or French and they participate in the cultural and literary institutions of, of the new countries they belong to. So you've got this sort of different sort of small spaces of Iranian literature happening in many different places um, around the world in the US, in France, in in Germany, in Australia. Uh, So that creates sort of different clusters of Iran outside of the borders of Iran and very often it's not in Persian, it's in the local languages. You do have some of it in Persian and you have publishers uh, publishing in Persian in the diaspora, you've got big publishers in a big publisher in France, you've got publishers in the US, you've got I mean, in um, the Netherlands, but but quite often it's also in the local languages. So you could say that you have not one Iranian lit- literature, but Iranian literatures in the plural.
1: Do you find that the experience has been similar for filmmakers in the diaspora as well?
0: Uh, I would say no, but I'm not. I'm not an expert in it, so. I'd prefer not to go too much into it, but I think it's very it's been very different from, for filmmakers and there's been a lot more exchanges and interactions with the uh, cinematic field within Iran and with the diaspora in, in the past four decades.
1: Towards the closing of your book, you mentioned something along the lines of you find that the nature of literature is changing a bit in the modern day and it's maybe becoming more media-focused, digital-focused, video-focused. I'm wondering if you could touch on that a little bit. It's interesting.
0: Yeah, it's probably so. The the book is quite descriptive, I think, because I really wanted to give a chance to the complexity and the many stories of Iranian literature to um, be expressed. So I'm trying not to have very strong arguments in general in the book. But in that last chapter, I'm, I'm bringing up this argument that literature in Iran is is taking a bit of a different shape. It's becoming more visual and it's not particular to Iran. I mean, we see this happening in in most literary fields um, because of um, the importance of of social media and so on. So I think it's also important not to see Iranian literature as, and Iran uh, for that matter, as absolutely different and specific and unique. It has its unique characteristics but it's important to make comparisons with other places and you know, as we were saying before, Iranians are, you know, living their lives and, you know, life is happening and it's important to um to not exclude it from uh global trends, even though it is somehow disconnected. Anyway, I'm going a bit off tangent here. Um <laughs> But yeah, so in that last chapter, I wanted to say that, yeah, Iranian literature is, is, taking, is taking a bit of a different direction, and maybe it's less important today than it used to be in the past. Uh, we know Iran is a very literary nation, uh, poetry, especially, is very important to everyday life. We've just mentioned the protest. Zan Zendegi Azadi and in the protests you see how poetry is used on a daily life basis but you have less um, like literature is becoming maybe less important in the Persian cultural system than it was in the past because it is more intermixed with visual media so maybe a better way to say it would be to say it's not less important but it's more mixed with other media and with other elements.
1: I totally agree with you that I think it is a global phenomenon that people are reading less and people are looking at videos more. It's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a thing that's happening everywhere. One thing I do admire though, that I think is unique to Iran and other places, but not happening where I'm from is that uh, poetry is a part of like the daily life for the Persian culture. It seems like seems like people are quoting poetry a lot. And I think, myself and my friends, like, we don't usually quote English poetry that that often. So I just wanted to say that's, that's that's like one aspect that I admire about that culture. Um, I think that's great. And I guess it inspires me to learn some more poetry. Yeah, no, it's, right? it's, very, <laughs> it's it's
0: very it's very obvious when you travel to Iran poetry is really, you know, there um in in the way Iranians function and it's it's a bit of a cliche to say so, but it is very it's still very much the case. So I should say that the book doesn't speak so much about poetry because poetry functions in a very different way from prose. So I, I do talk a bit about it, but poetry has its unique ways of functioning. It's a lot more linked also to uh, the way the nation represents itself. The the government is heavily invested in poetry events. So um, that's that quite different dynamics um, in poetry than in prose.
1: Well, I was wondering um, if you could take us for a journey through maybe like your favorite um Classical Persian piece of literature, your favorite contemporary one, and maybe like your favorite author or work that's from the diaspora. Just so myself and other listeners can read a little bit after this.
0: Hmm, that's interesting because I'm I'm looking at Iranian literature with this sociological lens. I I usually actually don't do close readings of texts. I do have a lot of favorite authors. One of my favorite is Zoya Pirzad. And she's uh, an Iranian writer from the Armenian minority. So Armenians are Christian in Iran. And it's it's a fairly big um, minority and quite well integrated. Um, so Zulia Piazad uh, has written uh, many books. Most of them have been translated into English and other European languages. So you can easily find them online. And she's um, she's a woman and she's, she's talking about small moments in, in women's life that Change how they think of their existence, of their place in the community, of their relation to their husband. Of uh, so, it's it's very subtle, but it's I think it's very representative of a certain trend of Persian literature, which which deals very much with what happens in the space of the home, because the public space is a bit of a, a space where you cannot do many things, you cannot have these, you know, interactions with persons of the other sex. So a lot of things are happening in literature within the home. And you, there's actually something in Persian, we call it uh, uh, the literature of the of the apartment, right? So so she's very much representative of, of that and of that trend of women's writing since the revolution. So there's been a lot of uh, women writers coming up after the revolution. And that's maybe one of the paradoxes of the Islamic regime. But also, I, sh- I, I should say that there are a lot of women writers and they're very prestigious and dominant on the literary scene. Uh, the whole ecosystem of um, literature is still very much owned and dominated by men. So publishers are mostly men. And, you know, people will make decisions at the literary level, um, at the ministry of his culture and Islamic guidance and so on. So that's still very male-dominated. But you do have a lot of uh, women writers and, and women readers, of course.
1: All right. That's great to hear. I want to know, too, what what do you miss the most about living in Iran
0: Oh, that's, uh, that's tough and that's a bit <laughs> sad. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I miss everything. Iran is a, is a is a place very dear to my heart. So I miss just wandering in the streets of Sharon and going to bookshops and going to art galleries and taking crazy cabs and, you know, the food and listening to bad Tarantulas music in taxis and, <laughs> um, uh, after the uh, women' life freedom movement things have shifted quite drastically I think in Iran and there's been a lot of changes at the uh, literary and cultural and university levels so for example lots of uh, scholars I used to work with at the university have left and I've had to leave for political reasons so I think there's been lots of uh, massive changes so yeah it's, it's, uh, it's a bit of a difficult time for, for Iranians and for everyone who loves the, the country.
1: Well, uh, thank you so much for sharing this book with us. I just want to tell listeners that you should Google the book because the cover is gorgeous. It's turquoise at the color and there's... Um, a beautiful photo on the book. Could you just talk really real quick about the cover of the book? Sure, and
0: how yeah, the yeah, so, so the photographer is Mariam Firuzi, and she's a photographer based in Iran and the image comes from a series called Reading for Tehran Street. So uh and she's got maybe 10 pictures of terror on streets. Um, and the one I chose for, for the cover really speaks to uh, a few of the ideas I'm, I'm mentioning in the book. as uh, something about children's literature and uh, something about women's writing and so on. So yeah, I was really grateful that she accepted to, um, uh, for me to, to use the image for the book.
1: All right. And we always have to ask here, what are you working on next?
0: Um, I'm working on a new project on publishing industry in Iran. So it's more uh, about going into the archives and looking at the history of the publishing industry. Uh, I'm going to write a very classical history of the publishing industry from the 50s to today, like looking at archives of publishers, memoirs of publishers. There's a lot of material in Persian, um,
1: yeah.
0: but it's not really a field that scholars from within Iran are interested in in or, or working on so there's a lot of things to manage a lot of material to manage and and quite a lot to write about i think so yeah i'm quite excited there's there's a big yet yeah, files on my computer um that yeah, i haven't I started to open but i know i will find treasures in them so i'm really excited
1: well that sounds awesome let us know when it's out so we can talk again that sounds <laughs> great,
0: great. <laughs> thank you, yeah. thank you so
1: much for do. taking the uh, time here to talk to us i really appreciate it
0: Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure.